Good morning. Thank you for coming. Uh, really great to have all of you here today. We're in the middle of a three-part series on the Trinity. We did God the Father last week, God the Son this week, God the Holy Spirit next week. Probably the most profoundly difficult doctrine in the Christian faith to understand, but we need to understand it, and it's especially significant for Christmas time. For if you don't understand the Trinity, you really can't understand the cradle. So we'll look at that in just a moment. Just a couple quick announcements. First of all, there'll be a prayer service tonight in the Karis room here on campus at six o'clock. Uh, the purpose of it is to pray continually for the persecuted church, for Abedne, uh, Nagme Abedini, who came and spoke here in November, her husband, Pastor Saeed, who still remains imprisoned in Iran, and, and also any of you who have any hurts and pains and uh, physical illnesses, we want to pray for you too. We've had miraculous healings uh, here over the last months, and we've done this prayer service, and we'd love to pray for you. And Jonathan mentioned it earlier, it seems like at Christmas time, every demon in hell comes out of nowhere. We sing joy to the world, and <laughs> we sing joy to the world, and a lot of people don't feel joy, and um, you know, there are a lot of people who really are lonely at this time of family. So if you'd like to be prayed for tonight and have a particular illness or whatever, it'd be our pleasure to pray for you. Also want to announce to you, I uh, don't know the figure on the So That campaign. Uh, we're very close. I told you I'm not going to tell you until I know, and I don't know what the figure is, but I did want to tell you this. Uh, this past week, we entered into a verbal agreement with Ebenezer ARP Church on Old Pineville Road in the middle of that South Boulevard corridor where we want to form a multi-ethnic, multicultural church with a particular influence in trying to care for the very broken community that's there, primarily the Latinos who are there. And we have entered into a verbal agreement with them. And real quickly, before you applaud and give thanks to God, here's a picture of the church. Uh, please go by and see it. It has a gymnasium on campus, a beautiful traditional sanctuary. We'll use both in the witness and the outreach. Uh, here's another picture of it. They have about uh, 20 people who are all over 70 to 80, and uh, they are not in a good condition to be able to continue their ministry. So they uh, and us have talked, and we have entered into this arrangement. Uh, very soon, folks, I'll be able to say, welcome to Forest Hill Church. One church, five campuses. This is our newest campus on South Boulevard. To God be the glory. We're excited about what that will look like in the years to come. You're so that campaign to build a facility in Waxhaw and for this facility on South Boulevard. Thank you. Okay, are you ready to go? Yes. Uh, three people are ready to go. Okay, <laughs> fasten your seatbelts. The second person of the Godhead in the Trinity. Now, what is the Trinity? Is the first question. Let me repeat some of the things I said last week. The Trinity is one person, one God in three persons. One God in three persons. Uh, some of the Islamic faiths say that's numerical nonsense. Some others in the Jewish tradition and Muslims say that's polytheism. You worship three gods. Nothing could be farther from the truth. In the history of the Christian church, as said in the Nicene Creed that we repeated earlier, in the Athanasian Creed was written about 100 years after the Nicene Creed, the church has always believed we believe in one God monotheistic in three persons, though, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, all different kinds of attempts through the ages have been given by illustration to try to help people understand it. We looked at some of those last week. Another one is, look at David Chadwick. To his wife, Marilyn, he is her husband. To you, he is your pastor. To my children, I'm their father. One person, but with three different personalities. Now, the idea there is like uh, an actor on a stage who puts on three different masks. One actor, three different masks. Folks, all of the illustrations we've looked at, although they're kind of helpful, they run dangerously close to an early church heresy called modalism. 
M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M. So if you even use that illustration I just used, it's dangerously close to modalism, which does not suggest it's one God in three persons. Three personalities, but not three persons. And the Christian faith believes it's one God in three persons. It's a mystery. If you can figure out everything about God, what would happen? You'd be God. And there'd be no reason to worship him. There is a part of God that is a mystery, and it is expressed in the Trinity. But though it is a mystery, it still can be attempted to be understood, and that's what I want to do with you today. In the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, God named Jesus. Now, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John, the 17th chapter, verses 20 through 24, he gives us some insights into his relationship with the Father. We'll look at the Holy Spirit next week, but before we read this passage together, let me just simply say, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in that unique one relationship, their greatest drive was to love one another. Before this world was ever created, they loved one another. The primary issue of the Father that we looked at last week was his love. 1 John 4, verse 8, verse 16, God is love. And the way that God loved in the Trinity is why he created you and me. The reason God created you and me was to express that love in our hearts, to put that love within all of us, to share the love the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have known with one another since the foundations of the earth so that we can know that love too. So why are you here? It is to receive the love of the Father and then to love other people. God keeps creating people from millions to billions so he'll have more people whom he can love. That is the reason God created you and me, and it's what exists primarily in the Trinity. You'll see this love between the Father and the Son in the verses we're about to read. If you're able, out of reverence for the reading of the Scripture, would you please stand? These verses are called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He had just prayed for his disciples. Now he's praying for all who believe in him. Guess who that is? Anybody who's here today who believes in Jesus, listen to these words. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So this high priestly prayer is not only for his 12 disciples whom he just addressed, but also for you and me who have expressed through our word that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. If you've spoken that word, you believe in Jesus, this prayer is for you. What does he want from us? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent us. He wants us to be one. There's nothing that expresses the Christian faith more than when churches remain one. There's nothing that shows Jesus isn't alive, isn't resurrected, than when churches divide. There's nothing that denies who Jesus is and why he came than when a Christian marriage separates. He wants us to be one as the Father and he are one. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. The world will see the love of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father as the Father and the Son live within us and make us one with one another who say we follow Jesus. Father, verse 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. When, folks, read the last part with me. When? Before? Before the world was ever created, the Father loved the Son perfectly, and the Son loved the Father perfectly, and they are in one another perfectly. A mystery. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in one God. They love one another before this world was ever created. And at some point in the expanses of heaven, there was an angel named Lucifer, the worship leader in heaven, and he rebelled against God. He wanted to be greater than God. He envied the position of Jesus. And in that rebellion, he led a third of the angels with him, and they became the demonic hordes. They have been rebelling against God, having war against God since that moment. Now, God then created this world. Biblically, we know Genesis 1 and 2, everything operated perfectly. In original intent, there was perfect relationship between God and Adam and Eve. There was a perfect relationship between Adam and Eve. There was a perfect relationship with creation, the nature that existed. No earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes. None of that existed in God's original intent. When God looked at creation in Genesis 1 and 2, he declared it good. It's operating the way I want it to operate. It's good. And then he had communion with Adam and Eve. He walked in the garden with them day and night. They spent intimate times together. And he said, you can eat of any tree in this garden except one. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you do that, you will declare that you're God. You will say like Satan, Lucifer in heaven, that you are greater than I am. You want to control what's good and evil. You will decide what's good and evil. Don't do that. And, of course, you know in Genesis 3.1, the Lucifer who led the rebellion in heaven shows up on earth. And he tempts Eve with the very temptation God told Eve not to eat of. He said, eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you shall be as God. You'll be greater than God. You can take control of your life. You'll define what's good, and you'll define what's evil. And, of course, she bit the fruit. She rebelled, and she passed it on to Adam. He followed suit. And what came upon this earth, folks, is the curse, the curse of the fall. It affected everything. There was now a separation between Adam and Eve and all humanity and God. There's a separation among ourselves. There's division, no more unity that God desires. Creation doesn't operate the way God intended it. There are now hurricanes, earthquakes, plagues, tornadoes. All of that has now come into this world in fact, in the Christmas hymn we sing, Joy to the World, there's a, a line in there that says, Far as the curse is found, the curse is found everywhere. In every particle of God's creation, the curse of the fall exists. Even so much as in the ovum and the sperm of every man and woman. When you were conceived in your mother's womb and that fallen cursed sperm from your dad and that fallen cursed ovum from your mom came together and formed you, you were birthed with a propensity, a bentness towards sin. The Bible clearly teaches it. It's the doctrine of original sin. It is not in much favor today with secularists. Most people want to believe I'm basically a good person and occasionally I do bad things. The Bible clearly teaches we are basically selfish and occasionally we do good things because we're created in the image of God. In Psalm 51, David cries out, in sin did my mother conceive me. Jesus said in Matthew 7, a verse we looked at last week in talking about prayer, he said, if you earthly fathers who are evil, 
and we are. Want to give good gifts to your children who ask for them. We do at Christmas time, don't we? How much more the Heavenly Father wants to give good gifts to you, his precious children. But he makes it very clear, you fathers, you mothers, we're all selfish, we're all evil. In our hearts, we are conceived with and live in a propensity toward self, toward rebellion against God. We define what's good and evil. We do what we want to do. Now, I've often joked with you, but let me say it again. If you don't believe that, have a child. Have a child. You will see from the very earliest days onward, they want the world to revolve around them. But here's another illustration. Marilyn and I have three children. They're all grown. We've raised them. We tried to teach them how to honor and respect their parents, how to love other people, uh, how not to do evil. But here's something we learned. Not once did we ever have to teach our children how to sin. Did we? You, who's a parent here today? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Have you ever had to teach your child how to sin? How to lie? Uh, how to take advantage of the situation, how to twist the truth for their own benefit. We haven't. Because it comes naturally. It comes without any hesitation. Because they're birthed with a sinful nature, with a desire for the world to revolve around them. So you have the triune God, one God loving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit perfectly, creating this world for that same kind of love, but there's a fall that's occurred. Now, now here's the dilemma. If God is perfect love, and he created you and me for that love to exist in and to have a love relationship with him and with one another, he, he looks at this world and sees our rebellion, and he is in what I call a cosmic conundrum. Here's his conundrum. He's not only perfect love, he's perfect holiness. In Isaiah 6... The other major attribute of God next to his love is the only phrase adjectively that's used in triplicate to describe God. What is that term? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The angels cried out before the throne of God. So God's not only perfect love, he's perfect holiness. And his holiness looks at our rebellion against him and his wrath is raised. He's angry against sin and how we've desecrated his once perfect creation. So his wrath demands justice. Doesn't it? The people in Ferguson, Missouri want justice. The people in New York City want justice. When we're offended, we want justice. So does God. So he has his love contradicted by his holiness. That's his cosmic conundrum. What does he do? And here's what he does. One day in the expanses of eternity, as he looked at this world, heading toward death and destruction, realizing that he created hell. The book of Matthew says that God created hell, but not for you and me, because he loves us deeply. He created hell for the devil and his angels. But he also realizes that if we continue in our unabashed rebellion against him, that will be our eternal destination. So knowing that his holiness has been highly offended, yet he has deep love for us still, he turns to his son. And in perfect love, he says, son, not created from me, but begotten from me, which means he flows from the same essence from the father. Son, would you please take on human flesh 
and be conceived by the power of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who will bypass the conception process in the womb of a virgin named Mary in Israel. And you will be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in that virgin's womb by a spoken word from me. And you will be a perfect man in human flesh created by me in that womb. And you'll be birthed in a cradle in the squalor of poverty in a town called Bethlehem, fulfilled in prophecy from Micah, the fifth chapter, verse 2, something written hundreds of years beforehand about this birth. And will you go? In Philippians, the second chapter, according to Pauline language, the Apostle Paul says that the Son, in eternity, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. You and me, we think equality with God is something to be grasped. I'm God. I can do what I want to do. I'll define what's good and evil. But Jesus didn't think equality with God was something to be grasped, but submitted himself and obeyed him and took on human form and went to the cross and died the death we deserved and gave us through his death forgiveness from our sins. You see... I can't die for you because I'm a sinful man. You can't die for me because you're a sinful person. The person who can only die for us has to have sin bypassed in his life. Jesus, during his 33 years, perfectly obeyed the righteous requirements of the law. He perfectly obeyed everything that was necessary under the law. So a human being can only die in our stead. I can't help but think that Satan, before the incarnation, cackled with delight, thinking, everybody's going to hell with me and the demons. They're all sinful. They all fall far short of the glory of the perfect holy God. <laughs> but he didn't realize the love of the Father who would become one of us. He didn't realize that God would take on human flesh and be the perfect God and the perfect man and obey the righteous requirements of the law where we couldn't and go to the cross and take all of the wrath of God upon himself that we deserved, something he didn't deserve. And then give us the forgiveness of our sins. Our hearts cleansed from all of that sin mess. And not receive the judgment we deserve. Why did he do it? Because God loves you. The Father loves you. And if you ever doubt the love of the Father, first of all, look at the cradle. Jesus leaving the splendor of heaven to take on the squalor of this earth. Jesus leaving the riches of eternity to enter the poverty of time and space. And also, not only look at the cradle, look at the cross. The suffering God would go through to take the wrath of the Father upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. And our relationship with the Father could be reestablished. And the triune love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can now live in you and me. The incarnation. I love Mexican food. Did anybody here love chili con carne? Chili con carne. Yeah. Meat with flesh on. That's what it means. And now aren't you thankful that you believe in God con carne? God with flesh on. 
All kinds of illustrations may be helpful at this point. Uh, For example, there is the illustration of if you saw a hill of ants that you deeply and dearly loved and you had all power, yet you saw water rushing down upon that hill and you wanted to warn those ants because, again, you loved them so much of the impending danger. And again, you had all power. What would be the best way of communicating to those ants about the danger? If you had all power, it would be to become an ant. Become an ant. That's what God did. God became an ant. God became a human being because he knew the only way he could communicate with us is to put on flesh, to look into his face. There's another great hymn of the faith, Hark the Herald Angels Sing During Christmas. There's a line in it that says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. God veiled his perfect holiness so that we could look into his face and live. Some people say that the Old Testament is radio, where we hear a lot about the Messiah coming and who God is. The New Testament's television. We see God in human flesh. I enjoy movies. There was one recent one that I watched, but with great angst. In fact, Marilyn couldn't watch it because it's such a powerfully painful movie. It's called 12 Years a Slave. We sometimes sing, we did earlier, about the ransom that God paid for us. Because of our sin, we owe God a huge debt we can't pay by our works, no matter how many good works we do. And that's all the other world's religions except Christianity. Do good works. Do karma, and you'll be rewarded. The Christian faith is the only one that says our debt's too big. It has to be paid for us. In 12 years a slave, a a Northeast African-American gentleman with a wife and children, a a very articulate, educated man, was drugged by two men and taken to Louisiana where he he was forced into slavery. For 12 years, he lived under the degradation, being demeaned, being whipped, beaten, because he was a slave. Yet he was a free man. For 12 years, he lived in that squalor. And then one of his friends from New England finally came and found him. And he paid the price necessary to set him free and to take him home. Folks, that's the gospel. All of us are slaves to sin. And God so loves us, he came and paid the price for our sin to forgive us and take us home. I love the movie Taken. You seen that? Liam Neeson, big hunk of a guy, trained in the CIA, FBI somewhere, but he knew military tactics. His daughter, with whom he had an estranged relationship at the time, was kidnapped and taken into sex slavery. She's drugged, tied to a bed, and Liam Neeson leaves the comfort of his home and pursues his daughter. He moves heaven and earth to find her. And when he has obstacles by these other guys who kidnapped her, even though they're heavily armed, he had his pistol, his AK-47, and in the name of Jesus, he blew them away. And he found his daughter tied to the bed, heavily drugged, clipped her free, put her over his shoulder, and brought her home. And in the last scene of the movie, his daughter and she... His daughter and he are in a close, intimate, personal relationship. She's so thankful that her daddy pursued her and set her free from her captivity and brought her home. Folks, that's the gospel. 
It's the gospel. The Father in heaven left the comforts of heaven and entered this world. And he moved heaven and earth facing the obstacles of the demonic in every way so that in the name of Jesus, he blew them away to set us free from the captivity of our sin to bring us home. And in that, we now have a new love relationship with him, previously estranged, now an intimate communion with him. Man, that's one good movie. And I just heard yesterday that Taken 3 is coming out very soon. To God be the glory. Thank you so much. Yeah. The, 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 the incarnation. It's what we're really celebrating this time of year. The, the sun left the splendor of heaven to come to earth. Keep, keep this in mind, folks. God's not aloof. The proof is the cradle. And one of the key words in the Christian faith should be pursuit. He pursued you in your sinfulness to bring you home. He pursues you constantly. The question is, will you let yourself be caught? Or will you continue to live in your stiff-arming of God? The key question in the Christian faith, in my opinion, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Do you believe he's just a mere moral philosopher, a good teacher, or do you believe he is God in human flesh, equal, coexistent in the same essence with the Father in heaven? Well, let me tell you what Jesus said about himself, especially in the Gospel of John. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, in case you don't know. That basically means they have similarities among themselves, and they do. It almost looks like one had the other in front of them and borrowed some of the same literature. But John is totally different. John was written in the latter part of the gospel accounts. And it was almost like the Holy Spirit said to John, love Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They did a great job. They missed something. They missed some of the son's clear claims to who he is. And let's make sure they get included in God's canon, God's Bible. Let's make sure that happens. So John listens to the Spirit and remembers many of the claims of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John. If you are a doubter today, if you're a spiritual skeptic, read the Gospel of John and all the claims Jesus made to deity. They are astounding. But let me give you just a few here today. In John the fifth chapter, verses 16 and 17 and 19, through 24. Here are four claims from the lips of Jesus. First of all, he says, his work is my father's work. Verses 16 and 17. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Notice he calls God my father, personal, intimate, the Jews were angry with Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Here was Jesus' answer. Do you think God stops working on the Sabbath? Aren't you glad, folks, that God still works on the Sabbath? That he provides our food and our necessities. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. God still works on the Sabbath. And we can only pray he'll work at 1 o'clock this afternoon as the Panthers take on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That God will continue to work on the Sabbath. And that was Jesus' statement. As I healed on the Sabbath, my Father still works on the Sabbath because I and my Father are one doing the very same thing. It's a clear claim to deity. Don't miss it. Secondly, he says, my work is my Father's work 
and I only see what my father does, and I do what my father does. Verses 19 through 21. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son, notice what he calls himself, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all what he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he wills. Now, in our day, DNA has become very popular. And it's especially important to, A, prove paternity. So if a child wonders if he or she's actually the child of this father, DNA proves it beyond doubt. DNA is also very helpful in watching television like CSI, right? <laughs> CSI, Miami, Los Angeles, wherever. The DNA is usually what's needed to prove who done it, right? Well, DNA didn't exist in Jesus' day. They couldn't use DNA to prove sonship. But there was one thing that always proved sonship, and Jesus knew it, his listeners knew it, and he's referring to it in these verses. What is it? Sonship was proven by the son seeing and doing exactly what his father did, especially vocationally. So if the father was a farmer, the son would see and do what the farmer father did and copy it in every way, thus proving sonship. If his father was a bricklayer or a carpenter or a soldier, same thing. The son would do what he saw the father doing, and that would prove sonship. And Jesus, in these verses I just read to you, clearly says, I only see and do what my father in heaven tells me to do. Now, clearly his listeners understood what he was saying. He was making a clear claim to deity, not based on human DNA, but based on an illustration vocationally that everyone in that day would have understood. Third, Jesus said, I judge all. Verses 22 and 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, real quickly, the Jehovah's Witnesses, God bless them, who knock on our doors regularly, use this verse and some others to say, see, Jesus is inferior to the Father. He's not the Son. They're not co-equal. The Trinity's wrong. But what they fail to understand is this judgeship given to Jesus didn't happen in time and space. It happened in eternity. We're limited by time and space here, folks. But the Father and the Son were in relationship far before this world was ever created. And that giving of judgeship was given to Jesus maybe at the point where Satan rebelled. But it was an eternal granting, an eternal gift from the Father. And the Son readily accepted it. That's why when the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Muslims say, Jesus can't possibly be God, he's praying to the Father. There are limitations in the incarnation that are clearly stated in the Scripture. One of those limitations is locality. Jesus existed in a time and place. He couldn't exist omnisciently everywhere. When Jesus prayed to the Father, it was a human dependence that he chose for himself. And so when he says, I don't know when I'm coming back, only the Father in heaven knows when I'm coming back. 
That's not a statement because he's inferior to the Father. He chose to have human limitations in his incarnation. And that subservience to the Father existed in eternity. A big part of love, guys. A big part of love, guys. A big part of love, guys. Are you listening? Is submission. Is submission. When you really love somebody, you submit to them. And Jesus chose submission to the Father. And one of those places was, if you want me to judge the whole world, I'll do so. So Jesus is judge over all the world, and every person who's ever lived will one day appear before the judgment seat of Jesus because the Father has given that to him. Folks, that is a clear claim to deity. And then finally, number four, Jesus alone gives eternal life, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you believe in Jesus, folks, you have eternal life. He grants it to you as a gift from the cross and his resurrection. Wow. So he dies on the cross, and he's placed in a tomb given to him by Joseph of Arimathea. He's lying dead on a slab And the father looks at his son who's taken all the sins of the world upon him, which produces death. The wages of sin is death. But his father still loves his son. And every Disney movie practically understands this principle I'm about to give you. If you have all power and your perfect love, and the one you love the most has just died, what will you do? What will you do, folks? You will use your power to raise that person from the dead. You can't keep a good God down. God, because of his love for the son, raises his son to new life. It proves the acceptance of the father of our sins having been forgiven. It also proves that love is the strongest force in the world. It can overcome your marriage difficulties right now. It can overcome your relational angst right now. It can overcome anything and everything. Love is the strongest force in the world. It raises people from the dead. And then Jesus ascends to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And here's what I believe with all my heart. When Jesus ascended into heaven, first of all, Colossians 2 said he made a mockery of the evil one and all of his power. There was a parade in heaven that mocked the evil one. (laughs) I can't wait to get to heaven and check out that video to see it. And then he was made king of kings and lord of lords. And in the anointing of the high priest in the Old Testament, oil was placed on his head. I think the oil, which is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit, was placed on Jesus' head and flowed down from his eternal body and came down to his church at Pentecost in Acts 2. The third person of the Godhead giving life to all of us, the Holy Spirit. If you want to hear that part of the message, you got to come next week. As we'll look at the Holy Spirit as the third person in the Godhead. So some of you right now are saying, well, so what? Great message, David. Understand the Trinity better. So what? I'm glad you asked. So what? First of all, if it's true and Christ lives in you and you've invited him into your life, you should have his presence. Christmas is not about P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. Christmas is about God being called Emmanuel and Jesus, about his presence in our lives. That means if Jesus lives within you, that means the second person of the Godhead is facing every single one of your problems with you. Isn't that good news? Would you give God the glory for that alone? Would you praise him for that? No matter what you face, his presence is with you to face it. 
Secondly, you have his prayers. Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn, Paul wrote, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, read the rest of it, please, who is interceding for us. How many of you have ever prayed a prayer and asked, God, I don't know what you're doing? I have. And what I'm reminded when that happens is Jesus is praying for me. I may not understand what the Father is doing. I may be asking why, but God wants me to ask who. Who is the one interceding for me? Who cares for me? It's the Christ in me, the hope of glory. Thirdly, there's peace. We're going to look next week at a biblical doctrine called the doctrine of theosis, T-H-E-O-S-I-S. My, my job is to make you guys mature believers in Jesus. And the church has always taught theosis. And it's basically this. When Jesus comes upon you, he gives you his peace, and he starts molding you into his image. And his peace isn't the absence of conflict. It's the ability to face anything knowing that he, again, is with you. There's his peace as the prince of peace. There's providence. That means God's in control of everything. The most often spoken word in heaven is going to be, oh, oh. As you realize that God was working all things together for good in your life. And he shows you how in his providence, in his perfect oversight. Oh. There's the poor. We Christians are called to care for the poor. It's just not an option. Why? Because God left the riches of heaven and entered poverty here on this earth. We're called to care. How are you caring for the poor during Christmas? And finally, there's proclamation. When I did this study this week, a new evangelistic zeal was awakened in my life. I want to tell people about the Son who pursued me and made me alive and new. Who are you inviting to Christmas Eve? Whom are you reaching out to to share this wonderful news of the Son? Who left the splendor of heaven to enter the squalor of this earth as a baby, in a cradle as the child grew up in perfect manhood and took the sins of the world upon himself, was then raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, now sits at the right hand of the Father, soon to come to judge the living and the dead, our great King, whom we worship today and ever and ever for the glory of the triune God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you give him praise at this moment? Amen.